KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. The CDC has added loss of taste and smell to its list of COVID-19 symptoms. Penn researchers have been looking into this, and they've just released a small initial study that has been published in the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. It's the first quantitative study to be done on the loss of taste and smell in COVID-19 patients, and they are following up with larger studies. Dr. Richard Doty is director of Penn Smell and Taste Center. He's been studying the loss of taste and smell in viral infections for nearly 50 years now. Tell me what, you know, this It was interesting. One of the newest, I guess, COVID-19 symptoms is this loss of taste and smell, which seems so strange. But is it strange, particularly when you're talking about viral infections? Well, it's unique in the sense that so many people uh, experience loss and in the absence of, of obvious uh, nasal congestion and problems of that sort. Uh, it's not unique in the sense that many viruses can cause long-term damage to the smell system. Indeed, in our clinic, the majority of people who come in, roughly, well, it's a little less than the majority, around 40%, will have had a, a respiratory infection, typically the common cold, and that sequela of that cold will be over, but it's six months later, they still discover that they can't uh, smell. This affects their flavor of foods. Common presentation is they say, I can't uh, taste, but actually it's the flavor of the food that's dependent upon the smell system. A common error that people make, and, uh, as well as professionals, and lay people as well as professionals make, is that when you lose your sense of taste, the assumption is it's the taste system that's impacted. It's really the smell system. So everything but sweet, sour, bitter, salty, uh, in effect, is the smell system. So if you hold your nose shut, put coffee in your mouth, you won't taste the quality of the coffee. Or if you put chocolate in your mouth, you won't taste the chocolate. And if you open up your nose, then you'll discover that the flavor comes back. And that's because the molecules have to go from inside the nasal cavity up through the rear of the nasal uh, cavity, uh, the so-called nasal pharynx, up to the receptors. And so people who lose their sense of smell often complain they've lost their sense of taste, and certainly the flavor of foods is gone, but the taste system, in terms of the taste buds, is not impacted. The one thing that most of us think about, you know, when you get a cold, as you just said, we kind of associate it with nasal congestion. You get all stuffy and you say, I can't taste my food. But COVID doesn't usually present with a stuffy nose. So what what is different about COVID-19 and what do you think is going on there? Well, what's happening, the virus is attacking or getting incorporated into cells in the top of the nose that are associated with the smell system. Uh, there's something called the ACE2 receptor that the COVID virus binds to and gets into cells. And those receptors are found on cells that are critical for regeneration of the olfactory system, as well as for supporting uh, its function. So we now know in a study we're just submitting, in fact, that return of function will occur in most COVID-19 patients, but it takes a number of weeks for this uh, occurrence to uh, be complete. 
So with the common cold, we also know that it damages those the epithelium receptors at the top of the nose, and that uh, those receptors have a propensity for regeneration, but they don't always completely regenerate. If you look at the receptors sheet at the top of the nose, it contains little hair-like cilia that extend out from the receptor cells. And uh, we have about 6 to 10 million of these receptor cells. But if you look at the epithelium of a young person, it's very much intact. As we get older, there starts to be sort of like cheesecloth damage into that region, and it's very uh, irregular. And that's because every time we have a cold, every time we get exposed to pollution, every time uh, the, the bacteria comes along or whatever, a toll is taken. And throughout life, we can sustain quite a bit of damage to that area. But when we get into our 60s and 70s, many of us are pretty much compromised, and it doesn't take much to take us over the waterfall. So in effect, we have, once we lose 60 or 70% of those cells, we're probably still okay. But then at some point, we'll see a decline in function. Actually, there's a tendency from ages 30 on for a gradual decline to occur in our small system, but the big effect occurs after the age of 60, 65. You did do a study that, you know, you just mentioned. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that involved? Sure. We're working with some colleagues in Tehran, and uh, basically within the hospital there, a specialized hospital, we administered the University of Pennsylvania Smell Identification Test, which is 40-item scratch and sniff smell test to 60 of these patients who were soon to be discharged. They'd been there approximately two weeks and uh, were ready to go home. And what we found was of those 60 patients, 59 out of 60 had demonstrable loss uh, based upon that smell test. A a control group, uh, only one person or a couple of people had loss and it was mild loss. What we found also was that in that group of COVID patients, about a quarter of them had absolutely no smell function. About a third had severe loss. So overall, over half of them had either either total or severe loss. Now, we're following that up over time currently in another study that's about to be published, where we're showing that over about an eight-week period, a suitable number of people get their smell back on the order of on the order of about 61% get back to normal. However, other 40 or 39% still have uh, smell loss, some degree of measurable smell loss. Now, studies up to that point, or studies in general except for this study, haven't actually measured the function. So people are asked about whether they have smell loss or not, and people are not very good at judging uh, the degree to which they have smell loss, or in some cases, whether they have it at all. And so these self-report studies, of which there's probably about 20 of them out there now, really are very misleading, or at least not very complete. Our study is the first and currently only study that's done quantitative testing of, of these kinds of patients. Did you find a correlation between the level of loss of smell and severity of disease? Interestingly not. In terms of their uh, entrance, uh, and there's a uh, Harvard uh, scale that's used to characterize the degree of severity, and there was no relationship. So we see the same thing in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. That is that there's no relationship between the severity of the symptoms and the smell loss. What we think happens is 
the damage occurs very early on in the disease process. And only later do these other cognitive dysfunction or motor dysfunction issues appear. In the case of Parkinson's disease, smell loss can occur uh, years before the onset of any of the other known symptoms of the disorder. So really in the 1960s and earlier, people thought that Parkinson's disease was probably caused by a virus. Now we think there's still probably many cases in which that is true. And whether it's the virus that damages the smell system, and that's the reason for the early loss in Parkinson's, or that some other factors are involved, or whether there's a combination of possibilities, is not clear. But certainly viruses play an important role in a lot of neurological disorders. And indeed, after the 1918 pandemic, the number of people with Parkinson's in the next couple of years appeared as quite large. So we don't know what's going to happen Two people have had uh, COVID-19, but we do know that there's an association with the uh, so-called Spanish influenza and outbreaks of Parkinson's disease. That That is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I was talking to a neurovascular surgeon a couple weeks ago about the blood disorders. And the one thing he mentioned when we were talking is that the coronavirus can travel up your nose, up the olfactory nerve, and it can get into your brain that way. And so when I was reading some bits about your study, I was wondering if do you if you think there's some correlation between how we contract the disease and the damage you're seeing and if it's related to the way the virus is entering the body as opposed to we also know if we touch something and scratch our eyes, we can we could get it that way too. Sure. Well, viruses can enter in the brain through the olfactory pathways. Uh, many so-called neurotrophic viruses do that. Classic one is polio virus. Back in the 1930s, they discovered in studies using largely monkeys but some rodents, that a major route of the polio virus into the brain was through the olfactory pathways. And in the city of Toronto, they took the entire school children of that city in a public health initiative and sprayed their noses to cauterize chemically the area at the top of the nose to minimize, to block the passage of the virus into the brain. Uh, Unfortunately, the aftermath of that, they created a lot of people with no sense of smell, and its effectiveness was not clear, and that was obviously before the polio vaccine became available. But they knew in those days, really in the late, uh, early 1920s, 1930s, that that was a major route of viruses into the nose. They tried to prevent it by by uh, damaging the epithelium so that such passage couldn't occur. So, uh, yeah, viruses are known to get into the brain. There's many St. Louis encephalitis virus, the rabies virus. A number of viruses can get into nerve cells and project into the brain, not just the olfactory pathways, but through other nerves as well. But the olfactory system is particularly susceptible to this because it has a very large surface area exposed to the outside environment within the mucus at the top of the nose. To give you an example, those little cilia extend out from the olfactory receptor cells in which the receptor is located. If you calculate the surface area of those cilia in the human, it's about uh, six or seven square inches uh, of area where viruses theoretically could their connections. Uh, in the Sherman Shepherd dog, it's about one and a half times the surface of the entire dog. So dogs are much more, you know, 
that have a much more elaborated olfactory system than we do. Uh, I know when I go home at night, my dog is always sniffing my legs. I think he thinks I've been out with a strange dog. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> there are. Uh, so there are big differences between species, but nonetheless, the basic principles there are that uh, this large surface area, which the agents can get into and get into the brain. There's also around the nerve fibers, the so-called perineural spaces, things get into the brain through that route. So it's one of the places where the blood-brain barrier is bypassed and uh, the direct route of invasion of various things, nanoparticles also, for example, from pollution directly into the brain through that through those olfactory nerve cells. Do you know at what point in the COVID infection that the loss of smell starts to manifest? Well, we certainly know that it begins, many people report at the time of the infection that they've discovered this, that fever and so on, that they have the smell loss. There's some suggestion that in about 17 to 20 percent of the people that smell loss comes before the uh, onset of these other symptoms. Uh, there's no empirical data. It's just sort of self-report on that. But we certainly know that uh, by the time of the infection or shortly thereafter, the smell loss is present, whether in some cases it occurs earlier, we're not sure. You had an odd finding about smokers. Yes. Uh, it turns out that in our sample, there were fewer smokers than you would expect. And now in China, they see the same thing. So it looks like uh, smokers, to some degree, may be protected against uh, this virus. Now, in terms of deaths, that's not the case. Some recent work at, in the New England Journal of Medicine suggests that smokers uh, are more likely to die from COVID-19. Uh, so it depends on whether you, So once you're infected, if you're a smoker, potentially you have a problem. But there is some evidence in our study, as well as in other studies, that smokers are less likely to get infected. Now, the reason for that's not clear, although we know that in the case of Parkinson's, for example, smokers are protected to some degree as well. So it may be that stimulating what are called nicotinic receptors or part of the acetylcholine neurotransmitter system, that when those receptors get stimulated, it helps the immune response, and therefore you're less likely to end up uh, with uh, severe uh, infections. We also know that in studies we've done with the Roman Haas plant down in Texas years ago, that individuals who were losing their sense of smell from exposure to agents used in plastic manufacturing, so-called acrylates or methacrylates, that there, again, non-smokers were more likely to experience the damage or experience the smell loss than smokers. So there is an interesting uh, relationships there between smoking and uh, contraction of COVID-19. But it doesn't receive popular press much because, frankly, smoking is so bad for you and it's a major killer of people. So, uh, But nonetheless, uh, probably through nicotine, there is some protection afforded for certain viruses. That's interesting because when you talk to people who are former smokers, one of the things they say is that once they start once they quit and they kind of get further and further out, that food tastes better. Sure. And that, that reflects largely the fact that the cells at the top of those have some propensity for regeneration. 
and we don't know exactly. It is interesting. Uh, we did a study in JAMA a number of years ago that showed that when you quit smoking, if you're a heavy smoker, it takes a number of years for your smoking function to come back to normal, where if you're a light smoker and you stop, it comes back rather quickly. So there's some long-term effect going on in the cells or in the brain that is not really understood. But certainly, uh, long-term smoking, uh, smokers will have take a longer time to get their smell back than, than people who smoke for short periods of time. What are the implications of this, the broader implications when it comes to um, diagnosing COVID or figuring out who has it? Well, we're currently uh, applying with the FDA for smell tests because it looks to me, as well as to others, that smell testing may, in fact, be as good or as accurate or as sensitive and specific as some of the PCR and other tests that are being used. But you know, it's a hard sell because we've I've been uh, over the years trying to convince doctors that testing smell is important. And while there are some physicians and groups who agree with me, others do not. And uh, one of the big problems is that there's no reimbursement for uh, smell testing, unlike other tests. So it hasn't caught on because people lose money giving these tests. And indeed, in many cases, uh, the smell loss can't be uh, fixed. So for those reasons, uh, smell has not been looked at to the degree it should be, I think, medically. When we developed the uh, University of Pennsylvania Smell Identification Test, this was the first time there was a simple test that doctors could use to determine what relative degrees of smell loss. And up to that time, uh, there really wasn't any adequate tests. It was just crude testing. So those tests are available now, and uh, I've been involved in the development of a number of smell tests and taste tests. But it, uh, and it is becoming more common to read in neurological textbooks or other textbooks about the sense of smell, although very few universities and medical schools teach students about how to measure it and the importance of smell in medicine. So uh, the fact that the first sign of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or among the first signs can be smell loss, the fact that COVID-19 is associated with smell loss, these kinds of things keep adding up, and hopefully in the next five years or so, uh, smell testing will be part of the normal armamentarium of physicians. But right now, uh, it's, uh, it's limited. So what's the next step here? You are doing a, a broader study, I understand. Well, we did a, we've, we've done, we're, there are many studies going on, two, two at Penn that I'm associated with. It's looking, one of which is looking at testing health professionals who uh, are exposed to patients with COVID-19 in terms of monitoring their smell function, determining how many may have uh, smell loss. Uh, another one is, is more broad that's looking at uh, comparing COVID-19 positive patients with COVID-19 negative patients. But throughout the world now, there's probably 15 or 20 major studies going on looking at this whole issue of the relationship between COVID-19 and smell function. What is your advice to you know, when people are hearing all these different symptoms, I guess, what's your advice to people who might not have other symptoms, but all of a sudden notice that their their sense of taste is off? Well, I think if it's been something that's happened suddenly, then it may well uh, be related to COVID-19. It doesn't have to be the only cause, but just out of, of caution, I would suggest they uh, self-quarantine. 
and also get further testing because it's a certain probability that that is uh, immune stages of COVID-19. One has to be careful, though, because as we get older, over the age of 65, uh, half the population has demonstrable decreases in smell function. And over uh, between 65 and 80, and over the age of 80, uh, nearly uh, the majority of people have uh, demonstrable smell loss. So smell loss can be due to a variety of factors, but in this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, immediate, if, if one gets into unexplained smell loss, then uh, it, one should be uh, take precautions about the possibility they do have they've contracted the virus. Dr. Doty, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sure. I hope I've been helpful. (laughs) You have been very helpful. We we really appreciate it. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is is interesting to include here that should be included? Well, I guess the policy thing is is that if you lost your smell due to the COVID virus, that over time, there'll be, in most people, there'll be improvement back to normal. But it may take a number of months okay. for that to occur. But the light, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Natasha Mirza is a professor of otolaryngology and director of Penn's Voice and Swallowing Center. Dr. Mirza is working with Dr. Doty and other Penn researchers on a larger study that involves testing hundreds of healthcare workers. Dr. Mirza, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You and your colleagues have started looking into the correlation between the loss of taste and smell and the the novel coronavirus. Can you tell me what you've discovered thus far? It's a little early to say because we're still in the data collection stage. And at this point, we are concentrating on healthcare providers. These are the people who are at greatest risk because they are the ones at the front the front lines. So we have been screening these individuals at this point. And of those who are screening positive, then we are doing the specific smell and taste testing by mailing them the kits where they self-test for smell. There is a forced choice test. You scratch and sniff on a little booklet, then you can self-assess the score. And the same thing for this waterless taste test where there's strips with a tastant, which are put into the mouth and kind of uh, move that little strip around in the mouth. And then you just mark off the taste that you feel. And then you can evaluate your own score. That score is then reported to us. So we're still in the data collection phase, and it's too early to tell right now. Do you, How many people are involved in this study? There is myself as the principal investigator, Dr. Doty, who I believe you will be or you have talked to, two stellar med students, uh, Zach Nimmo and Austin Cow, and two other ENT faculty, Dr. Cohen, and Dr. Brody. And how many healthcare workers do you hope to screen? So we're hoping to screen at least probably, so far we've got about 320. We're hoping to screen 500 plus. I know you're still in the study, but but how does this help us understand the disease better? 
Well, we know that the um, olfactory neurons are very often affected by a viral infection. That's been a known condition. People with um, even common colds or a bad viral upper respiratory infection can often get a smell dysfunction, which can last a varied amount of time. What we are interestingly seeing is in patients who are developing this smell and taste dysfunction is that they're very often developing these problems even before other symptoms or nasal congestion. So many of them do not have any symptom of nasal congestion. They just have a smell dysfunction and a taste dysfunction. What distinguishes our study is that we're looking at the select healthcare population that is at greater risk. And we're looking at not only smell, but also taste dysfunction because the virus seems to target. This is surmising that it may affect the neurons in the nose and it can affect the uh, taste neurons on the tongue. And it's at this point, we're just trying to identify this condition. But moving down the road, yes, some of these patients, if they convert, it will be even more interesting to see what's happening. Yeah, what are the broader implications of this for the entire population, or, or are there? There are, because, I mean, doing a smell and taste test is... Very easy. It can be self-administered with these taste kits. It's something that can be done anywhere, any place. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to send the cost of it as far as, you know, any kind of specimen going to any kind of lab. All that is eliminated if you can do this test and at least sort of be aware, okay, I've had a sudden loss of taste and smell, Maybe I should be a little careful. Maybe something else is going on. And then at least watch out. Like, Do I develop a fever? Do I develop a cough? Uh, Do I develop shortness of breath? Just making people a little bit more wary. And maybe they need to self-quarantine during that period. Everything is fluid. We're still learning a lot about the condition. But it's a very easy test for an individual to perform. So the implications are that as we learn more about this condition, this being one of the earliest symptoms that people are aware of can be very easily a warning sign for individuals. And our Academy of uh, Photolaryngology has recognized it and has put out a questionnaire for all the otolaryngologists. They can self-administer a test for themselves or can give it to their patients. So it is pretty much recognized that now among the symptoms of a fever, cough, shortness of breath, other viral symptoms, a loss of smell and taste is a pretty significant symptom to be aware of. Were you surprised when, I mean, as you mentioned, we are learning so much about this disease. It seems like every day we turn around and and there's something new or different the way it affects the body and the way it affects the body. Were you surprised when you heard that some patients were experiencing loss of, of smell and taste? Not really, because we know that even with the common cold, even when symptoms of the common cold have gone away, they're not having a runny nose and they're not stuffy. There is a select population that still have a loss of smell, 
the fact that there was a simultaneous in these patients loss of taste, that's a really interesting factor because in many individuals, the taste is kind of jumbled in with the smell. What they really lose is a sense of flavor. So they taste, but they really cannot appreciate flavor, which is a combination of smell with uh, taste. In these individuals, there is actually a complete, it appears to be at least a loss of taste per se, which is why we're theorizing that maybe the virus actually affects the taste cells on the tongue. But no, actually, viral infections affecting the neurons, which are most susceptible in the nose, is not a total surprise. And we know the highest concentration of this virus is in the nose and the back of the nose in the nasopharynx. And how? when do you hope to have results in, definitive results? We in? should have preliminary results in the next two to three weeks. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mirza. Really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank right. you so much for including me. I appreciate that. Sure. Stay sure. well. <laughs> All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon. 